Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. Hey everybody, welcome back to this, our final episode in our ongoing investigation into all things Doug Wilson. This is going to be another long episode, just warning you now, where we're going to examine yet another of the toxic legacies of Doug Wilson. In this one, we're going to look at his views on biblical patriarchy, or is sometimes similarly known, Christian patriarchy or complementarianism. Now, when I first started these shows on Wilson back in late 2022, I didn't know it would grow to be such a massive effort. In the end, I've still got more stuff on Wilson, despite all the work. I mentioned it a few times before, but at some point later on, I might do an entire episode on the 1996 book that he co-wrote with Stephen Wilkins called Southern Slavery As It Was. I've heard from a few of you about this, and there seems to be some interest in it, so if you want to contact me about it, let me know what you think about that or any other episode. You can do so in a couple of ways. You can contact me, send me a DM on Twitter, you can find me, you can follow me at MindShift2018, or you can send me an email through the public MindShift Podcast Facebook page. And of course, as always, you can help support the show by becoming a Patreon supporter, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that at the break. Now, before we get into the meat of this episode, which is really all about how pastors and leaders who have been influenced by Doug Wilson, what they're doing is they're spreading the message of patriarchy or complementarianism into the secular manosphere. Now, if you don't know what that means, I'm going to explain it in a minute. We've got to do a little bit of work first. I think it's important to take a few minutes and examine Wilson's own views first before we get into the topic. In essence, then, what we need to do is we need to lay the groundwork. We need to define our terms before we can move on. We need to examine, we need to define what is entitled biblical patriarchy. It's also known as Christian patriarchy or the Christian patriarchy movement, CPM as well as taking a look at complementarianism. We'll also touch base on egalitarianism. We're going to get a well-rounded feel for the various nuances and differences between these views. And as with everything related to theology or biblical studies, as you can imagine, there's been an absolute firestorm of debate, primarily between the complementarian biblical patriarchy and then the egalitarian points of view. Now, as an ex-evangelical, I can tell you, I'm not really interested in parsing biblical verses, but this is a very interesting thing to sort of lay out before we get into looking at Doug Wilson and his views. So the questions we need to ask first include the following. Are there differences between the biblical patriarchy and complementarian viewpoints, and is it even important to make those distinctions? Then having defined them, we're going to ask next if Doug Wilson, is he a complementarian or is he a biblical patriarchist, and why should those distinctions even matter? We'll first start by laying the groundwork. We're going to assess and define the complementarian view. Then we're going to move on to biblical patriarchy. Once defined, we're going to see then if there are any differences between the two, or if they're simply the same thing, just using different names. We'll then move on to the egalitarian position. We'll have a quick look at that, just to round out the whole discussion. 
Finally, we're going to conclude this bit by examining Doug Wilson's own views on the subject. We're going to try and determine which camp he belongs to. All right, let's get started. How exactly, then, is complementarianism defined? What's the history of how this position came to be identified? It starts with a good working definition, which we can find according to an article on Theopedia.com. It says, quote, Complementarianism is the theological view that although men and women are created equal in their being and personhood, they are created to complement each other via different roles and responsibilities as manifested in marriage, family life, religious leadership, and elsewhere. It is rooted in more literal interpretations of the creation account and the roles of men and women presented in Scripture. It is also known as the traditionalist or hierarchical view, end quote. Further details on complementarianism can be had in that same article on Theopedia. It points out that this view is, quote, usually characterized by a general, generally patriarchal view of the family. The father is responsible to lead, provide for, teach his children to know and love God as found in Scripture. Belief that a Christian husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church. Belief that a Christian wife should submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. Belief that God designed marriage to reflect the relationship of Jesus Christ and the church. Belief that only men should be appointed into authoritative positions of leadership in the church. And the article concludes, it says, The complementarian view of marriage maintains that gender-based roles and a husband headship structure in marriage is biblically required. A husband is considered to have the God-given responsibility to provide for, protect, and lead his family, while a wife is to collaborate with her husband, respect him, and serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. Complementarians assert that the Bible instructs husbands to lovingly lead their families and to love their wives as Christ loves the church, and instruct wives to respect their husband's leadership out of reverence for Christ, end quote. Essentially, complementarianism can be described as a position that promotes male authority and female submission as representing the will of God. As we'll see later, within the world of evangelicalism, complementarianism and egalitarianism have been set up as primary dividing lines, although in practice the divisions may not be so neat. So, although we're starting to have a grasp as to the basics of the position, we need to find out more. Where exactly did the complementarian movement originate? What is its history? Surprisingly, it's a fairly new position that's come onto the evangelical scene, although admittedly Christianity itself has long been shot through with a patriarchal bias. In fact, it's been commonly noted, for example, that all three so-called Abrahamic religions, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, are all deeply rooted in patriarchal systems. Moreover, all three, at least in their more fundamentalist forms anyway, are virtually indistinguishable from each other, and their most conservative practices, the role of women is almost always subject to men, and always has been. Recently, within the last couple of years, within evangelicalism, the gender debate has been reignited. We can point to such contributions as the publication of Kristen Cobes Dumais' book, Jesus and John Wayne, which is all about the rise and effect of militant toxic masculinity within evangelicalism. Incidentally, I interviewed Kristen a few years ago about her excellent book. So if you want to go back and find that episode, all of my old podcasts, they're archived on my website, which is mindshiftpodcast.co.uk. 
The debate was further fueled by popular Bible teacher Beth Moore's very public exit from the Southern Baptist Convention. Although it appears she still holds to a complementarian viewpoint, or at least elements of it, she cited as the main reason for her leaving an overemphasis on the, quote, man-made doctrine of complementarianism. Beth Allison Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, next only added fuel to the fire. And then finally it came out recently that Rick Warren's Saddleback Church ordained three women as pastors, all of whom had served on the staff there for years. Despite the furor that has arisen over the last few years about gender roles in the church and in the home, complementarianism itself as a movement or point of view can be dated back as recently as the late 1970s. A certain Dr. George Knight III, who served as an adjunct professor of New Testament at Greenville Presbyterian Theological School, was the first person to articulate the complementarian view. In a 2018 article on the CBE, that's the Council for Biblical Equality site, author Kevin Giles explains that, quote, In 1977, in the face of the growing impact of feminism on society and the church, George Knight III published his seminal work on the now-called complementarian view on gender, New Testament teaching on the role relationship of men and women. He, that is Knight, claimed that he was enunciating the historical or traditional view of the man-woman relationship, and this is true to some degree, but how he worded and formulated his case was entirely novel. He rejected the historic way of speaking of men as superior and women as inferior, replacing this with role differences. Men and women are equal, but men's role is to rule and women's to obey. These differing roles, he said, were given in creation before the fall and thus are transcultural and transtemporal. He also introduced the novel idea that the hierarchical ordering of the sexes was grounded in the eternal triune life of God, end quote. Knight's book, therefore, would be the first time that the complementarian position would be fully articulated using that language. Note as well something we're going to see as we go further into this topic. As Giles points out, one major driver behind the viewpoint itself is a reaction against the impact of feminism, both within the church as well as on wider society. I need to put a pin in that because we'll hear that point articulated over and over again by both complementarians and patriarchalists as we look at this topic in more detail later. Knight's hermeneutical approach took several disparate biblical texts, such as Genesis 2, 1 Corinthians 11, 3-16, 14, 33-34, Ephesians 5, 22-24, and most important of all, 1 Timothy 2, 11-14, and formulated them all into a theological construct. Note that aside from the Genesis text, all the rest are from the Pauline epistles and have something to do with gender roles and relationships. Knight argued that these texts, when taken together as sort of a biblical theology, spoke of the creation-mandated subordination of women, and perhaps most importantly, he maintained that the biblical position is that this subordinate role should always be binding on women. In addition, he argued that the Trinity serves as a model of subordination, and thus women should be in submission to men. Thus, according to Knight, Scripture permanently subordinated women to men, or in his words, it is, quote, what the Bible teaches. Perhaps unsurprisingly, a great many evangelicals virtually uncritically embraced Knight's seminal work, seeing his roles argument as a way permanently to subordinate women, as well as to aid in their interpretation of key biblical texts about gender differences. 
Well, if you've never heard of Knight's work on the subject, you might be more familiar with complementarianism from the so-called Danvers Statement, which came out of the 1987 Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, or CBMW. Two major evangelical leaders and scholars behind the council were John Piper and Wayne Grudem. Speaking of Grudem, as a side note, I recall when I was in seminary in Portland, Oregon, back in the late 1990s, they brought Grudem in to speak for a week straight on the topic of headship and how it all related to this issue of complementarianism and gender roles. I attended one session. I honestly found it completely boring, to be perfectly honest with you, even though I was an evangelical at the time and I admired Grudem for his immense theology textbook, at least. So back to the CBMW. Although the original meeting was convened in Dallas, Texas in 1987, the statement's name was derived from the second meeting, which was held in Danvers, Massachusetts, later that same year, although the final document wouldn't be released until 1988 in Wheaton, Illinois. I'll come on to this later, but it's surprising to point out that just as with Knight's earlier work on the subject, a great many mainstream evangelicals, churches, Bible college and seminaries, Christian organizations and parachurch ministries not only embraced it, they are still, to this day, in essential agreement with the statement. Many have adopted the statement's declarations on complementarianism as their basic platform related to gender roles and distinctions, and they've enforced it when it comes to women's roles in both the home and in the church. As the movement gained in popularity among evangelicals, Piper and Grudem later released their book of essays in 1991 entitled Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, A Response to Evangelical Feminism. Incidentally, their book was named Book of the Year in 1992 by none other than Christianity Today. As I pointed out a minute ago, note the subtitle of the book. It's all about a response to evangelical feminism. In part, again, complementarianism is a reactionary movement against what they perceive to be the corrosive effects of feminism. Since its inception, the complementarian movement has continued to grow in popularity. As a result of ongoing articles and books on the subject, the CBMW launched the Journal for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood in 1994. Now it's titled, less provocatively, it's called ICON, and that's E-I-K-O-N, a journal for biblical anthropology. In 2017, the CBMW convened a meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, attended by over 80 evangelical leaders who were apparently concerned about the Western culture's, quote, total revision of sexual and gender norms, end quote, and that's from their CBMW website. Again, note the reactionary stance. The resulting Nashville statement was supposed to be the final word on biblical sexuality and offered up supposedly to help evangelical churches address these issues of sexuality. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it caused a lot of controversy when it was released. Even Nashville's mayor, Megan Berry, tweeted out in August of 2017 that the, quote, so-called Nashville statement is poorly named and does not represent the inclusive values of the city and people of Nashville, end quote. In the 2017 Washington Post article, shortly after the Nashville statement was released, journalist Samantha Schmidt pointed out that, quote, the manifesto, which is composed of 14 beliefs, rejects the idea that, now quoting from the manifesto, otherwise faithful Christians should agree to disagree on gay, lesbian, and transgender issues. She says that the leaders refer to this mentality as, quote, moral indifference, end quote. According to John Piper, the modern inclusive culture has had a destructive influence 
and thus, in his view, they needed to finally set the record straight. The statement was seen as both callous and cruel and horribly mistimed, given that at least two of the signatories to the statement were, at the time, evangelical Trump advisors, Pastor Jack Graham and Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council. Despite the social media backlash and controversy it generated, both the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA, and the Southern Baptist Convention adopted it, as well as other conservative Christian schools such as Cedarville University, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Union University. Thus, once again, we see that those within the complementarian camp not only can be seen as reactionary, but they also have a tendency to promote views massively out of step with those of mainstream progressive society. Just in terms of the spread of these views, as I've pointed out previously, one major concern is just how massive the reach of biblical patriarchy or complementarian teachings are into the Christian day school and homeschooling environment. Uh, Bill Gothard, for example, had his advanced training institute, the ATI. It was a Christian curriculum. He had that for decades, as well as pushing the view in his writings and in his nationwide seminars. Of course, we talked about Doug Wilson and his omnibus curriculum and his Association of Christian and Classical Schools Network. Both men's writings have been widely circulated, studied, and emulated by a huge number of Christian homeschooling families. Note also that the Southern Baptist Convention, who adopted the complementarian plank in their platform decades ago, they're the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Just as a side note, those evangelical leaders who released the Nashville Statement just so happened to be attending a Southern Baptist Convention Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission in Nashville, and the statement grew out of that convention as well as taking its name from the city. Just as an example of how the Southern Baptists incorporated the complementarian view into their theological platform, they sent out a Baptist Faith and Message newsletter in 1988, but critically, they amended the section entitled The Family. Let's just look at the use of the complementarian language in the following statement. The statement says, quote, a wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. She, being in the image of God, as is her husband, and thus equal to him, has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and to serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. End quote. By the way, this statement from 1988 is virtually identical to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So really, over the next intervening several years, nothing really changed from their point of view, at least. Other notable organizations or people affiliated with biblical patriarchy or complementarian views include the now-defunct Vision Forum, along with its disgraced leader, Doug Phillips, Bill Gothard and the IBLP, the Institute on Basic Life Principles, of course, Doug Wilson, John Piper and Wayne Grudem that I mentioned before, Jeff Botkin, Dr. Vody Bauckham, Dr. Albert Moeller, Sovereign Grace Ministries, the Gospel Coalition, and the current leader of the CBMW1, Dr. Denny Burke, just to name a few notable figures or evangelical organizations who have promoted the patriarchal or complementarian views. The complementarianism position is, of course, in distinction to the egalitarian point of view, which is defined on Theopedia as follows, quote, egalitarianism within Christianity is a movement based on the theological view that not only are all people equal before God in their personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home, the church, and the society. It is sometimes referred to as biblical equality. 
Egalitarians understand the Bible as teaching the fundamental equality of women and men of all racial and ethnic groups, all economic classes, and all age groups based on the teachings and example of Jesus Christ, end quote. Thus, in many egalitarian churches, it's more common to find a woman pastor or elder, for example, whereas in complementarian churches, governing and teaching roles would be strictly limited to men. Complementarians disagree, however, on which roles are open to women in church settings, but most would agree that women can't be pastors or elders. Any role that puts a woman in an authoritative position over men, such as a pastor, teacher, elder, or head of a household, would be severely frowned upon. In this view, then, you tend to see women teaching children, for example, in Sunday school. They can lead women's Bible studies. They can speak at women's conferences and so forth, but they certainly cannot be an elder or a pastor. Speaking of patriarchy and how there can be a very ugly side to it, I can recall years ago when I was in Bible college where a woman, she was the wife of our missions class professor. She filled in for him for one session when he was away at a, an academic conference. One of the men in the class, the, the second she introduced herself and just tried to get started, he raised his hand and proceeded to inform her that she had no authority to teach the class because there were men in the room. For her part, she was pretty gracious about it, I have to say. She explained that she was not only there under the headship of her husband, as well as the president of the Bible College, you know, and that kind of shut him up for the session anyway. But that sort of knee-jerk reaction just demonstrates how vile some people can be when it comes to this issue. I've also got a, a relative, or a former relative now, he's now a pastor, that I attended that same Bible college with decades ago. I can recall vividly him telling his then wife, whenever they had a disagreement on some matter, he would say, listen, Ephesians 5.24, read it. Talk about the ultimate trump card, eh? So as we overview it, it seems to me that the basic argument of complementarianism is this. Although men and women are created of equal value in the eyes of God, there are clear and distinct differences when it comes to roles, and these roles are designed to be complementary to each other. According to Genesis 1 and 2, Adam was created by God first to be the head, and only secondly was Eve created to be his helper, or helpmeet as the old King James Version has it. Women are not to be an authority over a man, but are to submit, as Paul argues in Ephesians 5.24. All right, now that we've got a bit of a working definition of the complementarianism and egalitarian viewpoints, what about biblical patriarchy? Are there any significant differences between it and the complementarian positions, or are they the same thing, but just using different names? According to a 2021 article on the biblicalgenderroles.com site on complementarianism, they define biblical patriarchy as follows, quote, Biblical patriarchy is a belief system which reflects the historic Christian view of biblical teachings regarding gender roles. It's, it's derived from a natural and literal reading of the biblical texts of both the Old and New Testaments. This natural and literal reading reveals that God has designed the family unit as a patriarchy, or literally, father-ruled institution. The children obey their parents, and the wife obeys her husband as her earthly lord, as the church obeys Christ. Also, Biblical patriarchy accepts biblical teachings that men are to rule over women, not just in the home, but also in the church and civil society, end quote. That last line is our first clue that the two positions don't always agree, and it starts to inform us that there are some key differences between the two. From what I've researched, while there are many areas of agreement, it seems clear that biblical patriarchy goes further beyond what most mainstream complementarianism teaches. 
looking further into the definition of biblical patriarchy or Christian patriarchy, blogger Libby Ann in a 2012 Patheos article about Christian patriarchy explains that, quote, Christian patriarchy is the belief that God has ordained a specific family order and that this family order must be followed. The husband leads, the wife submits, and the children obey. Christian patriarchy holds that women must always be under male authority or headship. A woman is never to be independent of male authority. First, she is under her father's authority and then under her husband's authority. There are two important aspects about Christian patriarchy. The first is the belief in the importance of male headship or authority, and the second is the belief that men and women have vastly different roles to play. A third issue involves the role of children, end quote. According to this view, which at first glance sounds virtually identical to what we saw earlier with complementarianism, children are to obey their parents as unto the Lord, respect the authority of their fathers as the head of the household, and be involved in some form of Christian education, whether that be a Christian day school or a homeschooling environment. The major difference between complementarianism and biblical patriarchy is that the latter view goes further by limiting the role of women outside of the home, extending even into the realm of work or career, running for public office, or in some cases, for that matter, whether or not she can even vote in a public election. Moreover, according to the biblical patriarchy view, for a woman to be considered truly submissive, obedient, and therefore godly and blessed, she must first submit to her father while she's single and living under his roof. Upon marriage to an approved and, of course, godly man, she then transfers that submission to her husband. Some in this sphere go even further and promote the stay-at-home daughter movement, as we heard about from recent guest Kate West. Thus, at no point is the woman out from underneath the umbrella of authority that God set up. And incidentally, this is the exact same model that Bill Gothard teaches still within his IBLP cult. I, myself, was raised by my parents, as they ascribed to his model, with devastating result both from my parents' marriage and our family. As a result of its toxic teachings, oftentimes within this model, we see a major emphasis on the purity or modesty culture. Women are not to dress provocatively so as not to cause men to stumble. If the woman gets sexually assaulted or abused, more often than not, she is blamed for it. Both boys and girls are raised to believe that they must maintain their virginity until their wedding night. And here we see things like purity rings, purity vows, chastity pledges, and even arranged marriages. The courtship model, where both sets of parents first approve the relationship and then supervise or chaperone each date, it's often used by Christian parents to help guarantee that no hanky-panky goes on before marriage. This is so as not to spoil the present, you know, so they won't have sex before they're married and ultimately lose out on God's blessing on that newly married couple. Incidentally, the biblical patriarchy movement is a major driver in a great many Christian homeschooling families. I suppose one cynical way we could view it would be that in the homeschooling environment, it allows parents greater control over their children, and thus, in their view, they can send them out into the world untainted by the damaging effects of sin. Thus, for that homeschooled kid, what better way to ensure he or she enters into marriage as an unspoiled virgin than by using the courtship model? And then some other associated topics that we see, they go along with biblical patriarchy. They include the following, things like female head covering as mandatory, whether it's in the church or at home or both, the so-called family-integrated churches, where all members of the family attend the services, so there's no Sunday school for the kiddies, specifying gender roles within Christianity, as we mentioned, no female elders or pastors, etc., male chauvinism and patriarchy, the quiverful movement, and as mentioned earlier, the stay-at-home daughter movement. 
Now, we've talked a lot about women, but what about the role of men? Well, the men in the women's life are supposed to set an example of Christ's headship over the church by obeying him. They're the servant leaders who lead by example. Thus, the men are meant not only to function in their God-ordained roles as the head of the household, but they are also the spiritual head of the house and the marriage. In turn, by dutifully obeying the male authority figures in her life, whether it's her father, brother, husbands, or the pastor, who is, of course, a man, or even her, her own sons if she's widowed, the woman, in turn, obeys Christ. In God's economy, men are to provide and to protect and set a godly example of leadership to their wives and their children. Oftentimes, he's the sole provider financially, and the buck stops with him when it comes to disciplining the children. The role of women in this model is to care for the children and the home in a nurturing capacity. It's been stated many times before, but doesn't this kind of strike you as a desire to return to a 1940s or 1950s way of life, the so-called golden age of leave it to beaver and father knows best? It's a good question. G'day, I'm Troy. And I'm Brian. And we're the hosts of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, an ex-evangelical podcast. We used to be loyal members and leaders in Australian Christian megachurches, but we're not anymore. I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist is an honest and hilarious peek behind the curtain at the weird, the worrying, and sometimes traumatic world of evangelicals and Pentecostals. We share our stories, we interview prominent guests in the global ex-evangelical space, and provide a platform for others to tell their stories about their time in evangelicalism and their journey out. Shortlisted at the recent Australian Podcast Awards, I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist gives you a unique global perspective into one of the fastest growing religions in the world from the people who actually lived it. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and IWasAteenageFundamentalist.com. Let's take a look at Doug Wilson's views now that we've had a good overview of biblical patriarchy, complementarianism and egalitarianism. This is where we have to be careful. We try to parse all these views out. Is Doug Wilson a complementarian, or does he fall fully into the biblical patriarchy camp? He's certainly been noted over the years as saying and writing some truly troubling and disturbing things about women, but there are some subtle distinctions that we need to make at this point. It seems that on some level, not even Wilson's views extend as far as some of the more hardcore biblical patriarchists. For example, while agreeing that women are not to be set up as authorities over men, Wilson states that by the same token, men can learn a lot from the women in their lives. Despite this admission, nonetheless, he's quick to turn around and argue that men must be in control, at least in churches and the family, which according to him must be masculine in our ministries. For example, in a 2012 blog post on the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood site, while he admits men have a lot to learn from women, his next statement makes his point of view unequivocally clear. Quote, That said, in these egalitarian times, we must insist on a masculine presence in the pulpit because the church is the bride of Christ and he need, needs to obey her husband in everything, Ephesians 5, 5.24. The Lord required this of us, 1 Timothy 2.12, and so that is what we must do. The individual man in the pulpit must be masculine because the bride of Christ must be feminine. The appropriate feminine response of the church is to be submissive and you cannot be submissive while disobeying, end quote. Whether or not He's a complementarian or a biblical patriarchist. It should be clear by now that Wilson does not agree with the egalitarian viewpoint. In line with what we noted earlier, in a reactionary stance, he ascribes its influence as having corroded the correct biblical position of complementarianism or patriarchy within the church and marriage, and specifically its sexual aspect and how that relates to authority and submission. 
Just to take one disturbing example of what he teaches, Wilson argues in his book, Fidelity, what it means to be a one-woman man, that, quote, when we quarrel with the way the world is, we find that the world has ways of getting back at us. In other words, however we try, a sexual act cannot be made into an egalitarian pleasuring party. A man penetrates, conquers, colonizes, plants. A woman receives, surrenders, accepts. This is, of course, offensive to all egalitarians, and so our culture has rebelled against the concept of authority and submission in marriage. This means that we have sought to suppress the concept of authority and submission as they relate to the marriage bed. And he goes on, he says, but we cannot make gravity disappear just because we dislike it. And in the same way, we find that our banished authority and submission comes back to us in pathological forms. This is what lies beyond sexual bondage and submission games, along with some very common rape fantasies. Men dream of being rapists, and women find themselves wistfully reading novels in which someone ravishes the soon-to-be-made-willing heroine. Those who deny they have any need for water at all will soon find themselves lusting after polluted water, but water nonetheless. And Wilson concludes, he says, True authority and true submission are therefore an erotic necessity. When authority is honored according to the word of God, it serves and protects and gives enormous pleasure. When it is denied, the result is not no authority, but an authority which devours, end quote. Incidentally, the sections of Wilson's book that I just read to you was posted by Jared Wilson. He's no relation to Doug. Jared's a pastor out of Kansas City, Missouri. It was posted on the Gospel Coalition blog on July 13, 2012. That posting, perhaps unsurprisingly, caused a firestorm of controversy. In a 2012 Patheos article, Author Sierra pointed out that just one of the many issues with Wilson's argument was as the following. She noted that, quote, Doug Wilson is arguing that rape is an inevitability if women do not sexually submit to men in marriage. First of all, this makes no logical sense. He basically says that people who have egalitarian sex will eventually snap and rape people or long to be raped because they must find a sense of authority and submission somewhere. The problem is that isn't what happens, end quote. Blogger Libby Ann commented in a similar article on Patheos around that same time, taking both Jared and Doug Wilson to task. She stated that, quote, what Wilson says is that it's that egalitarian mutuality in marriage that is causing men to be rapists and women to have rape fantasies, because when it comes to sex, men have the need to dominate and women have the need to be dominated. And when they don't get that in the marriage bed, well, they look forward in perverted ways, i.e., becoming rapists or dreaming of being raped, end quote. Just a minor point here on this whole story. Jared Wilson, after the firestorm of controversy, his blog post uh, had one by extolling Wilson's teachings, later removed it from the Gospel Coalition blog. He, is, he issued an apology stating his foolish and rash behavior that led him to post Wilson's citation in the first place. Now, whether or not he was truly repentant is beyond the scope of what we're doing here, but it's a disturbing example, once again, of just how toxic Wilson's teaching on the subject of complementarianism or biblical patriarchy can be. Regardless of Jared Wilson's walking back of his thoughtless citation of Doug Wilson's highly troubling statement, as we've seen, there's some seriously flawed views that Doug Wilson espouses when it comes to egalitarianism and complementarianism, especially in the realm of marital sex, submission, authority, and how all of that might somehow contribute to rape culture. We heard, for example, in a previous episode that the charge of marital rape is common in Wilson-inspired churches. 
Women, after all, in his view, must submit to their husbands in everything, even if he demands sex and she doesn't want to give it. So what do we think? Is Doug Wilson a complementarian, or is he a biblical patriarchist, or is he some kind of combination of the two? Although these two views, they do, as we saw, share a lot in common, the differences seem to be about emphasis and degree. For example, Wilson would agree that husbands are to be the figurehead leader to their wives. He stated, for example, in a 2017 blog and Mablog post, that a husband's, quote, first task is therefore to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He is to lead by example, end quote. As we noted earlier, another significant difference between the two positions is that the more hardcore biblical patriarchy advocates that the rule of men should extend beyond the home and the church into the civil sphere too. Women shouldn't run for political offices or in some cases even work outside the home as only men should be in charge, the sole provider for the household. Bizarrely, even in some cases where the family is financially struggling and desperately needing the money, wives aren't allowed to get a job or even entertain thoughts of having a career. Now, Wilson doesn't quite go that far. I think he would reject the notion that it's a sin for women to run for public office or work outside the home. I mean, even his own wife, Nancy, goes along. She writes books. She goes along to conferences and works kind of alongside of him. Some of the more extreme biblical patriarchy adherents also hold as I mentioned before, that women shouldn't vote in political elections, or if they do vote, it should be exactly as their husband tells them to. And as I mentioned before, one area where they do agree is that within both camps, there's a great many in this camp that are homeschoolers. As an example of the differences between the biblical patriarchy and Wilson's position, the biblicalgenderrules.com site takes Wilson to task. It accuses him of being a complementarian who is masquerading as a true biblical patriarchist. He is, in their words, a counterfeit biblical patriarchist. They argue, for example, that Wilson, Wilson stopped short of advocating that the husband should physically discipline or spank his wife. They say, as an example, that, quote, We have clearly established from Doug Wilson's own words that he believes husbands do not have the power to compel the obedience of their wives and that they may only lead by example. A person who may only lead by example is not an authority at all but rather they are just a figurehead. Therefore, Wilson has reduced husbands to mere figurehead leaders of their wives and not real authorities over them. And this teaching that a wife's submission to her husband is voluntary and may not be compelled from her husband is a core tenet of complementarianism. And the article goes on to conclude, they say, if you talk to biblical patriarchists online or in person, you will find that a core doctrine they believe in is that of the husband's responsibility to discipline his wife some might not believe a husband has the God-given authority to spank his wife, but they believe that husbands have the right and responsibility to discipline their wives in some form or fashion. It concludes and says Doug Wilson and other complementarians have taken the husband from being the greatest human authority God ever established, aside from Christ himself, to making the husband the weakest authority. And in truth, the husband is not really an authority of all, but merely a figurehead leader, end quote. Wilson would agree with biblical patriarchy that men are to oversee churches, pastors, elders, leaders, and furthermore, that women are not to oversee either the house or the church. In Wilson's world, men are firmly in charge. But what seems to distinguish him from the true biblical patriarchy movement is that he does not advocate, as we saw some within the biblical patriarchy movement do, the husband should be allowed to discipline their wives, and that even takes the form of spanking her. In that same blog and Mablog article I quoted from a minute ago, he comes out strongly against Christian husbands doling out, quote, a beating for the little missus, 
and he concludes his statement by arguing that, quote, and a man who thinks it is just, that's spanking his wife or beating his wife, demonstrates how far away from the spirit of the gospel he actually is, end quote. Although Wilson may not believe in such practices as husbands spanking their wives or disciplining them in that way, he does advocate, though, that husbands need to correct their wives regarding things like her household tasks and so forth, calling her out where he feels she's falling short. If she doesn't submit to this element of correction by her husband, at a certain point he should take the matter to the elders of their church, and she should be placed under some form of church discipline. According to Wilson, wives need to be led, quote, with a firm hand by their husbands. As an example of his disturbing view of Christian marriage and how the husband's headship role should function, Sarah Stanker points out in her Vice article on Wilson that, according to his 1999 book, Federal Husband, Covenant Headship and the Christian Man, quote, Wilson asserts men must assume full spiritual responsibility for the household, including any wifely negligence to submit in things like, now quoting Wilson, spending habits, television viewing habits, weight, rejection of his leadership, laziness in cleaning the house, lack of responsiveness to sexual advances. And Staker goes on to say, such a husband must confess failure in leading his wife, outline clear expectations, and repeatedly point out her failures, end quote. Perhaps even more disturbing, Wilson lays out the following advice for the Christian husband in that same book. He argues that, quote, the first time the dishes are not done, he must sit down with his wife immediately and gently remind her that this is something which has to be done. At no time may he lose his temper, badger her, call her names, etc. He must constantly remember and confess that she is not the problem, he is. By bringing this gently to her attention, he is not to be primarily pointing to her need to repent, rather he is exhibiting the fruit of his repentance. He then concludes, he does this without rancor and without an accusative spirit until she complies or rebels. If she complies, he must move up one step, now requiring that another of her duties be done. If she continues to rebel after patient effort, he should at some point call the elders of the church and ask them for a pastoral visit. When the government of the home has failed to such an extent and a godly and consistent attempt by the husband to restore the situation has broken down, then the involvement of the elders is fully appropriate, end quote. So while he doesn't go so far to advocate for Christian husbands spanking their wives as a more hardcore biblical patriarchist adherent might, Wilson does agree that it's definitely the role that the husband correct his wife even for minor infractions like not doing the dishes. Therefore, at least on some level, I think he does hold to some elements of the biblical patriarchy position when it comes to Christian husbands taking covenant headship over their wives. Wilson also teaches in line with the Danvers statement that due to the fall in the Garden of Eden, from Eve forward, women have an inbuilt desire and drive to usurp their husband's role. According to this view, this has not only set up a situation whereby wives and women are constantly striving to usurp and best men and their husbands, it contravenes the so-called natural order that God has set up for men and women, husbands and wives. For example, in a 2013 blog post on his site about bitter and unsubmissive wives, Wilson stated that, quote, when God assigns our roles to us, the men have to do what God tells them to do, and women have to do what God tells them to do. The value of doing this is in no way undone or refuted by those who refuse to do it, end quote. According to his view, then, it seems to work like this. 
In God's economy, husbands are assigned by God to lead by example, and wives are to submit to their husbands. Unfortunately, due to the fall and the corrosive effects of sin, women have a desire for control or mastery. He goes on to state that, quote, this means that the fall made the relations between the sexes kind of rough. The woman will want to wrest control of the relationship away from the man, and the man will react forcefully and frequently disproportionately. There is a war between the sexes because the world is a screwed up place, end quote. There's some good news in all this, however. Wilson claims, in line with the Danvers statement, that the gospel has transformed all this, but that doesn't turn him into an egalitarian. In his view, it doesn't mean that the issues of submission and authority have been set aside altogether. Husbands are to lead by example as the authority figure, and wives are joyfully to submit to his leadership. And while he claims he's strongly opposed to misogynistic, abusive, angry, lazy, or unfaithful men who create lousy marriages, by the same token, he'll also turn around and state, quote, But let us also be opposed to marriages that are thoroughly unhappy because the wife has usurped control of the relationship and is a catty, ungodly, controlling, insubordinate, unhappy, and unsubmissive woman. These exist also, correct? Shouldn't we be against them also? End quote. We've already talked about in previous episodes how Wilson has this strange view that submissive women are magically somehow protected because they're submitting either to their fathers or their husbands. This, in his view, also protects them from being raped and somehow opens up unsubmissive women to the charge of, in his words, quote, tacitly agreeing to the propriety of rape, end quote. According to blogger Libby Ann in a 2016 article on Patheos, she claims that his views on women and how it relates to patriarchy are especially disturbing for the following three reasons. She says, quote, first, Wilson imagines a society in which women are physically protected by their male relatives from the threats posed by men outside of their family circles. I say imagined because the picture he draws is at odds with the world within which we live. Second, Wilson argues that courtship is to be preferred to the alternative, but his understanding of courtship is more than a little bit rosy, while his understanding of its alternative is dire indeed, again at odds with reality. Third, and finally, Wilson addresses whether women who refuse to be controlled by their fathers and other male relatives are asking to be raped, end quote. She hits the nail on the head. In Wilson's twisted worldview, somehow women who are submissive to their fathers and maybe even their brothers and then later their husbands, are somehow magically protected from a number of physical threats, including the threat of rape. Courtship and submission by women are the solution for Wilson, and the fear he relays to women is that if they are unsubmissive to their fathers and husbands, they're tacitly agreeing to the propriety of rape, in his words. Libby Ann continues on in that same article. She says, quote, Wilson is responding to discussion of rape culture, so he would probably argue that feminists also consider men a threat to women. Not so. Implicit in any discussion of rape culture is the idea that rape culture is not inevitable, that it can be unlearned. Rape culture is the idea that men and women are taught from childhood toxic ideas about women, women's bodies, and sex, that a man is entitled to sex if he buys a woman dinner, and that a woman who wears certain clothes is asking to be raped, and so on and so forth. She concludes, she says, note what is absent, the idea that men are naturally sexual predators. While Wilson believes women must always be protected from men, feminist discussion of rape culture rests on the idea that if we can, as a society, unlearn these toxic ideas about femininity and masculinity, the rate of sexual violence would decrease, end quote. 
Let's conclude this section. So thus in the final assessment, although Wilson's views on gender roles specifically, and women in particular, are oftentimes horrifying and toxic, I don't think he falls completely into the world of a hardcore biblical patriarchist. That doesn't mean, however, that his writings or Christian homeschooling curriculum won't be used by families attempting to educate their kids and pattern their marriages after elements of the biblical patriarchy model that he does promote. He has some particularly troublesome views on women, as we've seen in rape culture, and as we've noted already, a lot of his statements, like other complementarians, are a reaction against what he sees as the corrosive effects of feminism, both in the church and in wider society. But by the same token, as far as I can tell, he doesn't advocate that Christian husbands should be allowed to spank their wives as a form of discipline, as some biblical patriarchists do. But as we noted a minute ago, while he doesn't quite go that far, Wilson does promote the extremely disturbing view that the Christian husband has a position of covenant headship over his wife. As a result, if she falls short in any area, putting on a few pounds, rejecting his sexual advances, failing to do the dishes, whatever it might be, ultimately, the elders of the church should get involved if she fails to live up to her husband's exacting standards. Ultimately, whether he's a complementarian or some degree of biblical patriarchist, that kind of marriage is not something I'd wish on anybody. After the break, we're going to come back and take a look at this issue of the manosphere. What is it? What exactly is it all about? And then we're going to conclude by looking at how these complementarian biblical patriarchy views are spreading into the secular manosphere. And specifically, we're going to take a look at two pastors who have been influenced by Doug Wilson's teachings and how they're taking that message into the secular manosphere, which to me is a really disturbing thing. We're just going to take a minute here and have a look at what's coming down the pipeline here on MindShift Podcast. I've mentioned before, been trying to work on getting Elgin straight on the show. He's an ex-Moody. In fact, he was just on the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, which you just heard from the guys a little bit ago. He was on that show not long ago, and I've worked on getting him on my show, as well as having him come in, I think, in April as our guest on our MindShift Zoom call. So we're going to work on that. That hasn't been scheduled yet. I'm also working on getting Venny Koshis in. We've had a little bit of a scheduling snafu. I was sick, and then some other things came up, so we're having to reschedule that. But as mentioned, the next episode is going to come up with Nathaniel or Nate Manderson, a self-proclaimed liberal Christian who's taken on the Christian right. He does a lot of writing for Salon. It's really interesting. I got a hold of him, and the more we talked, the more we realized we had a lot of things in common. We actually went to the same seminary for a while back on the East Coast. So that's a really interesting discussion coming up next with Nate Manderson. And then I've gotten in touch with my good friend, my old buddy, Chris Shelton from the Sensibly Speaking podcast. He's, of course, an ex-Scientologist. He's been on the show before. And I got to thinking about this the other day. I thought, man, I have not had Chris on for years. So it'll be good to touch base with him and see what's going on in his world, how his show's doing. We had a lot in common as well. That was one of the things that I've really learned a lot from Chris back in the day because I was studying cult psychology. And then when he and I compared notes between me, an ex-evangelical, and him, an ex-Scientologist, we found surprising that we had a lot more in common than you'd think on paper. But uh, the fact is, it's still the same sort of cult psychology, cult tactics that are operative in many high-control groups, not just uh, limited to so-called quote-unquote cults. They can be cultish, as Amanda Marcotte argues in her book. So I'm looking forward to having Chris back on the show. In fact, I might see if I can try to get him to drop back in as our guest for our June Mindshift Zoom call. So 
I'll see what Chris says and get back to you. We'll see if we can set that up. Speaking of these calls, I mentioned it before. We've got one coming up here on Sunday, the 26th of March. That's with Sam Tarot. He's a really interesting guy. I chatted with him about two, three weeks ago. He's a former Christian sort of anti-conception guy. Not really quiverful, but a lot of his stuff was picked up by those within the quiverful sort of movement. And it was really fascinating to talk to him about his backstory He's an ex-evangelical a lot like me, so we're going to have Sam come in. How can you get a hold of these calls? How can you be part of these things? They are available to those who are supporters of the show on Patreon, and what happens is you get access there to those calls as well as access to our Closed Mindshift Podcast Facebook group, and that's a really great supportive community. So those are some great benefits that you get by being a Patreon supporter of the show, and if you're interested in that, the links, as always, are in the show notes. We're now going to get back into the second half of this conversation. We'll first start by looking at some of the guys who are in Doug Wilson's patriarchal orbit, and then we're going to get into the subject of the manosphere, and then look at two key figures who are spreading that biblical patriarchy, that complementarian view into the secular manosphere. And what does that mean to me? As I said before the break, it is a very disturbing trend. So let's get back into our discussion as we continue to look at this final episode, Doug Wilson, Biblical Patriarchy and the Manosphere. As we start now to think about the reach and the influence of Doug Wilson and the legacy, the toxic legacy, I should say, of his patriarchal or complementarian views, it's worth taking a minute to note that Beyond the immediate damage that Wilson's theology and his teachings have had on the marriages, and of course, especially the women in his church or affiliated churches that follow his teaching, let's remember that Wilson also has a huge reach into the Christian classical day school and homeschooling movements too. Thus, his legacy is being passed down through his curriculum, through his writings, into the lives and homes of potentially tens of thousands of families and impressionable young people. As we get into some of the evangelicals associated with Wilson on some level, we're going to see that Christian leaders and churches that promote a patriarchal view of gender roles, such as John Piper and his Bethlehem Church in Minneapolis or John MacArthur's Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, what they do is they've displayed historically a pattern of horrific treatment of women. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on either one of these men, but it's worth mentioning both of these guys and taking a quick look at their legacy. John Piper, to start with, he's another leading figure in the patriarchy or complementarian movement. We talked about him before the break and his counsel on biblical manhood and womanhood. One of the aspects of his teaching is something known as marital permanence, which is a theology that states that divorce is never an option, even in the case of spousal abuse. He famously, or I should say infamously, stated once in a YouTube clip, that Christian wives should submit to verbal abuse from their husbands, quote, for a season, and perhaps even endure being, quote, smacked around one night before going to seek help from her, of course, male-led church. The late Christian blogger Rachel Held Evans commented in a 2018 piece on Piper on her site that, quote, as we have seen in the unfolding story of Sovereign Grace Ministries, that's, of course, C.J. Mahaney, in highly patriarchal churches where women have no power and where abuse claims are typically handled in-house by the men in leadership, abuse runs rampant. That's because, contrary to Piper's argument, patriarchy isn't about protecting women, it's about protecting men. It's about preserving male rule over the home, church, and society, often at the expense of women, end quote. And of course, Piper and his Desiring God network have helped to platform Wilson numerous times 
both in videos, conferences, with his writings on their site, and so forth. John MacArthur, on the other hand, is another one. And by the way, even though he calls himself Dr. John MacArthur, he does not have an earned doctorate. It's an honorary one. But that doesn't stop him from billing himself as Dr. John MacArthur. Now, bad news for him, though, he's in the news at the moment. Investigative journalist and Christian author slash podcaster Julie Royce broke the story on her Royce Report site last year about a woman who was told by elders and counselors at MacArthur's church that she was not to seek a divorce from her abusive husband. Then it came out that years earlier, another woman, a second one, Eileen Gray, had also sought help from the church when her husband was not only abusive toward her, he also molested their children. She was told by the elders at that time to let him back into the home, to submit to his authority. And then when she refused and left the church, MacArthur then publicly named and shamed her from the pulpit. And, believe it or not, then he proceeded to excommunicate her from the church. Even after her husband was convicted in 2005 of child abuse and sexual molestation, the church continued unbelievably to support him and shunned her. This story gained even more traction when a recent article in February 2023 came out in Christianity Today about the case, and of course it was citing the Roy's report. In February this year, Julie Roy's followed up on that story by detailing the latest twist at MacArthur's church. An elder there, a certain Hone Cho, and I hope I pronounced his name right, he also happens to be a lawyer. He was charged by the elders to investigate the decades-old case, apparently in response to the reporting on it by the Roy's report. When he did, he was horrified to discover how the church had mishandled the case, and more importantly, Eileen Gray. According to Kate Shelnut in that Christianity Today article, following his investigation and filing of a 20-page report to the board, Cho, quote, tried to convince the church's leaders to reconsider and at least privately to make it right. He said Pastor John MacArthur told him to forget it. When Cho continued to call the elders to do justice on the woman's behalf, he said he was asked to walk back his conclusions or resign, end quote. And that's exactly what he did. Ten months ago, he and his wife resigned from the church the very next day after being told to walk back his conclusions. But of course, there's more, as Shelnut points out. She says, quote, Though Cho stepped down quietly, he continued to hear from other women from his former church. They had also been doubted, dismissed, and implicitly or explicitly threatened with discipline while seeking refuge from their abusive marriages, end quote. Of course, Eileen Gray wasn't the only woman suffering at the hands of MacArthur's toxic patriarchal teachings. According to Julie Royce, in a February 2023 article on her site, she comments that, quote, Cho told CT, Christianity Today, he expected MacArthur and the elders to right the wrong, to this day, the church and MacArthur have not admitted any error or issued any apologies concerning the case. Instead, Cho said many GCC leaders, that's Grace Community Church leaders, refused to even read the TRR, the Roy's Report article, and MacArthur refused to con- reconsider Eileen's discipline, citing claims of her, quote, bizarre behavior, Cho said, end quote. And before we get too far off track on Piper and MacArthur, we could do whole episodes on these guys. Let's just note the toxic legacy of the whole teaching of biblical patriarchy and complementarianism as promoted by such influencers. For example, Tim Chastain on the Jesus Without Baggage blog notes that, quote, one of the most tragic outcomes of Christian patriarchy concerns the counsel pastors and other leaders give to women and girls who come forward to report abuse. Very often the response is that the female victim is the one at fault. 
the girl enticed the man with her clothing or behavior, and the wife did not do enough to support her husband and make him happy. Instead of reporting abuse to the authorities, the church leader's advice to the abused wife is to make a greater effort to be subject to the abuser and make him happy. Separation is frowned upon, and divorce is usually forbidden as a sin. It is up to the abused wife to fix the situation she created, and she does this by becoming more subject to her abuser, end quote. And beyond that major concern, the harm the biblical patriarchy or complementarianism does to women, what we're seeing now is that there's a whole new generation of young, bearded, I don't know what you call them, dude bros, beard bros. They're taking the biblical patriarchy message into disturbing new places, and most specifically, the manosphere. Let's take a look at how these connections are being made and see if we can't link it back to Wilson and other people in his orbit promoting this toxic biblical patriarchy model. So if you've never heard of the manosphere before, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to explain it, I'm going to define it, and then I'm going to take a look at two Wilson-inspired influencers who are taking his message, or at least the biblical patriarchy complementarian message, into the secular manosphere. So let's take a look at this issue of the manosphere. What exactly is it? Recently in the news, you may have heard reference to it when the controversial misogynistic social media influencer, the so-called men's rights activist, Andrew Tate, was arrested in Romania in early 2023. Apparently, shortly before getting snaffled up by the police, he'd been in a humiliating Twitter spot with teen climate activist Greta Thunberg, which according to all accounts, he more than lost. Even more ironically for him, shortly thereafter, both he and his brother were arrested by Romanian authorities on suspicion of human trafficking, rape, and forming an organized crime group. According to a January 2023 article in the Manchester Evening News, quote, the 30-year-old former kickboxer rose to prominence through his misogynistic content. Tate is known as one of the prominent faces of the Manosphere. The Manosphere is a wide range of content aimed at men. While some influencers, blogs, websites, and forums in the Manosphere are focused on subjects such as fitness, fashion, faith, and relationship advice for men, there are problematic aspects of it. The dark side of the manosphere includes content that promotes misogyny and is staunchly anti-feminist, end quote. So admittedly, while not all of it is toxic, the darker elements of the manosphere involve the misogynistic, patriarchal, and anti-feminist trend that has unfortunately found wide resonance with men worldwide. Going further into the definition, according to Christian Thorsberg, in an article on The Grid site in August of 2022, the manosphere, quote, is a term used by sociologists to describe the online ecosystem of anti-women websites, from those that actively promote extremist behavior, violence against women or incel culture, to those that share views on a perceived final frontier of traditionally masculine values or are interested to varying degrees in male superiority, end quote. In light of our progressive society's constantly changing gender landscapes, Traditional stereotypes, such as the following, have radically changed. Men as the family's breadwinner, their physical strength, being the sole provider, and those who do the tasks that involve physical labor. This also includes challenging the stereotype that submissive women stay at home with the kids, just like Leave it to Beaver or Father Knows Best. June Cleaver, for example, played the part of the happy homemaker and housewife. She didn't have a job, while Ward, her husband, was clearly the head of the house. He always had the final and wise word, he served as the disciplinarian, and he was the sole breadwinner. The fact is, though, that the world of work has become increasingly competitive, non-gendered, and individualized. 
Some men, however, are threatened by these changes and therefore find it convenient to blame women and the corrosive impact of feminism as the root of the problem in wider society. One overriding desire of the manosphere community is to become an alpha male or a chad. This is a man who is dominant, who displays high traits that he believes makes him sexually attracted to women. Women that he wants to fall in love with are called Stacys in that world. Andrew Chait would seem to fall within this category of an alpha male. Incels, and I'm going to explain a little bit more about this in a minute, these are men who blame women for their lack of sexual experiences, their virginity, or just the inability to attract a woman. Social media influencers like Tate, who before his arrest was finally banned from TikTok and other media platforms for his misogynistic and fascistic views, they succeeded in pulling in huge numbers of young teenage boys and young men to his platforms. Although accused of essentially running a giant scam or grift, there's no doubt that Tate made a ton of money by cleverly working social media. But as Amanda Marcotte noted in a 2022 Vice article, the very nature of social media and its online algorithms are inherently designed to continue to feed the user a constant stream of similar content. Continually viewing this content, which the algorithms suggest and feed to the viewer, then builds on young men's insecurities and grievances towards women. Once sucked in, the feeds start directing them to overtly fascist and extreme content. Andrew Tate, for example, has been linked to controversial individuals such as Proud Boys founder Gavin McGinnis, right-wing psychology professor turned self-help guru Jordan Peterson, InfoWars anchors, British conspiracy theorist Paul Joseph Watson, and of course Alex Jones, Nigel Farage, and finally Jack Posobiec and Mike Cernovich, who are both far-right trolls who delight in pushing conspiracy theories like Pizzagate. Cernovich, by the way, seems to be the embodiment of everything that's toxic about the manosphere. In addition to his writing and blogging, he, in 2017, he teamed up with Alex Jones on InfoWars, and he's also been noted for his violent, misogynistic statements about women. According to a Southern Poverty Law Center article on him, they comment that, quote, in 2011, after his divorce from his first wife, Cernovich set up an advice blog, Danger and Play. On it, he offered lifestyle advice on fitness, food or alternative medicine, and openly advocated for violence against women and non-consensual sex, end quote. The article goes on to say that, quote, he's declared elsewhere that the hotter the sex, the more closely it resembles rape. Cernovich's belief in alpha maleness is used to excuse all sorts of non-consensual behavior in the bedroom, end quote. So yeah, in addition to guys like Andrew Tate, the manosphere has got some real pieces of work like Cernovich. Okay, back to the manosphere. Now, rather than becoming a compassionate and sensitive man that many women are actually looking for, Amanda Marcotte in her article comments that, quote, what Tate and other right-wing influencers like him offer male audiences instead is grievance, an opportunity to lash out at feminism. They often even dangle out hope of a return to a system where economic and social dependence on men force women to settle for unsatisfying or even abusive relationships. Organizing with other anti-feminist men is held out as the answer to their problems, end quote, and thus you have the manosphere. In a 2022 Vox article, Rebecca Jennings comments on Tate's popularities and by the extension out of the manosphere when she points out that, quote, most of his, that's Tate's, fans are young men, presumably these, those most primed to take in his views because of their existing resentment, anger, and sexual frustration. It's the same impulse that leads young men toward hateful communities on incel forum forums or other toxic spaces like Gamergate, pickup artistry, or men's rights activism. 
It is also perhaps the same one that encourages 16-year-old boys to instruct their female classmates to, quote, go make me a sandwich, end quote. Didn't you hear Doug Wilson say something to that effect, that godly women are the ones who make their sandwiches for their men? I'm sure it's just a coincidence. So the Manosphere, as it turns out, is far from a monolith. It's made up of a number of different communities or groups. Jessica Aston on an InternetMatters.org article describes the Manosphere movement as follows, quote, the Manosphere is a network of online men's communities who promote anti-feminist and sexist beliefs, blaming women and feminists for all sorts of problems in society. Many of these communities encourage resentment or even hatred towards women and girls, end quote. There are four main groups involved in the Manosphere movement. Number one are the men's rights activists, the MRAs. And Haston says they, quote, advocate political changes that will benefit men. However, much of their activism consists of harassment and abuse towards feminists and other female public figures. Number two are men going their own way, or MGTOW. They argue that women are so toxic that men should avoid them altogether. Some MGTOW will date women, but avoid anything serious like getting married, while others won't even be friends with women. Number three are pickup artists, PUAs. They teach men seduction strategies so that they can be more successful in attracting women. Many of these techniques involve mistreating women, such as insulting them, nagging, or disregarding consent. And finally, she says, number four, involuntary celibates, incels, believe they are entitled to a relationship with a woman, but are incapable of finding a partner. Multiple acts of extreme violence and even murder have been attributed to this group, end quote. Incels often define themselves by their inability to have sex with a woman, or at least carry on a romantic relationship but are, for whatever reason, incapable of doing so. In the end, it would appear many incels have put the blame on women for their plight, rather than taking any responsibility for their own choices or actions. Originally started as a supportive type of community for such men, much of the incel movement has devolved into a misogynistic, bleak, anti-women, hateful community online. There's another piece we need to look at. It's some insider jargon or loaded language that's critical to understand when we're studying the manosphere. According to a 2016 article in The Guardian, Stephen Marsh explains that the movement's origins can be apparently traced back to a Reddit forum entitled The Red Pill. The forum took its name from the statement that Morpheus made to Neo in the movie The Matrix. Morpheus advised Neo that taking the red pill as opposed to the blue one would wake him up to reality and potentially lead him far down the rabbit hole. Thus, within the manosphere, Men are viewed as having taken any one of a number of different colored pills, just like in the Matrix. For example, on the one hand, men who have swallowed the blue pill are those who live in blissful ignorance about the true state of things. On the other hand, red pill men have woken up to the harsh reality concerning the truth about female nature, that men have been oppressed by feminism. Having had their eyes open to the truth, they now need to take a stand and fight back against the unjust system. Unjust, that is, for men. At the most extreme end of the manosphere are those incels that I mentioned a minute ago, the involuntary celibates. They've taken the black pill. According to a 2020 technology review piece, author Tanya Basu warns that incels are, quote, the most potentially violent of the group. Incels abide by the black pill, a belief that women use their sexual power to dominate men socially. For that, incels want revenge, end quote. In that Guardian article, Marsh goes on to explain how much of the thinking within the culture works. Quote, the rabbit hole, in this case, is the reality that women run the world without taking responsibility for it, and that their male victims are not permitted to complain. 
This makes the red pill a continuous, multi-voiced, up-to-the-minute male complaint nestled at the heart of the so-called manosphere, a network of websites preoccupied with both the men's rights movement and how to pick up women, end quote. So let's take a look at this incel community. That We need to look at that in a little bit more detail. My major concern here is that pastors, such as the two that we're going to look at in a minute, are intentionally linking themselves and their patriarchal or complementarian teachings to the Manosphere community. We've already noted that the Manosphere could be a dark place, but there are some in the incel community, as pointed out a minute ago, who are out for revenge. For a number of incels, there comes a point when all that violent and misogynistic rhetoric spills out beyond the chat rooms and online forums and into the real world. Just since 2014, for example, there have been more than 50 documented cases of incels committing violence. Let's take a look at three of the most extreme of these cases. First, in 2014, incel Elliot Rogers posted a rambling 141-page manifesto detailing his frustration over his virginity and his hatred toward women. He then went out and killed six people in a shooting and stabbing spree in Isla Vista, California. In some incel communities, Rogers is seen as a hero and a model to emulate. Second, in 2018, in Toronto, Canada, 24-year-old incel Alec Manassian drove his van into a crowd, killing 10. He later stated that his, quote, mission had been accomplished, and he linked it to the incel community. Finally, here in the UK, in 2021, 22-year-old Jake Davidson went on a shooting spree that killed five people, including his mother and a three-year-old girl. While his motive was never clearly established, it was later found out that his YouTube account featured videos of Davidson ranting about incels using key terminology from the manosphere and referring to other ideas which were linked to its subculture. In a Cambridge.org academic article on the subject of incels and potential linkages to violence, the authors clarified that, quote, the incel subculture emerged from the manosphere, a collection of online forums where misogynistic views are prevalent, including the belief that feminism has ruined what they perceive to be an ideal society. Entitlement, misogyny, jealousy, fatalism, and victimhood have been identified as driving forces of the incel subculture. They go on to say, incel philosophy centers on an understanding of society as a hierarchy, where one's place is determined by appearance. Incels perceive themselves to be stuck at the bottom of this hierarchy, whereas women are viewed as sexual gatekeepers who make dating decisions based on attractiveness, weight, height, ethnicity, and health. They conclude by saying, they believe the most attractive idealized men, or chads, attract the most attractive women, Stacys, leaving the less attractive women for men residing in the middle of the hierarchy, normies, and none for the incels. Therefore, incels blame women for their lack of sexual experience, providing the basis for their misogyny, end quote. All right, now that I've given you a basic working definition or overview of the manosphere, let's take a look at this issue of the 21 Studios or the 21 Convention Patriarch Convention. It was this convention that began to pique my interest in making the connection between Doug Wilson and the secular manosphere. Upon further investigation, it turns out that Wilson is the key linchpin to multiple pastors, or at least two, who were going to be speaking at the Patriarch Convention. Now, this was held on October 14th through 17th, 2022, in Orlando, Florida. This is alongside the 21 Convention's Make Men Alpha Again and Make Women Great Again conventions. And this is from the 21 Studios 21 Convention website. The founder of the 21 Studios or 21 Convention is a certain pro-patriarchy, anti-feminist, in his own words, he's the Manosphere President, Anthony Dream Johnson. 
He's also the co-founder of the Red Pill Group podcast, described on his Twitter bio as, quote, the world's greatest red pill podcast for men. What's fascinating about the Manosphere movement, as I pointed out, is that it's a secular thing. It's not a Christian thing, although there is a Christian subculture to it. However, what we're seeing now is an increasing overlap with the Manosphere and biblical patriarchy. Just as an example, past 21 convention events have included Christian pastors like Michael Foster, Brian Salve, and Ken Curry, but also Jeff Younger, he's an Orthodox Christian, Jack Donovan, he's a solar idealist, and Tanner Guzzi, he's from the Latter-day Saints. As Will Spencer explains in an article on Chess Magazine, Doug Wilson's influence is being felt in this movement that combines religion and the manosphere. He says, quote, Today these realms, the manosphere and patriarchy, are converging. More and more men in the manosphere are being baptized in Christ following influential leaders like Foster, Elliot Hulse, Arthur Kwan Lee, and Jesse Lee Peterson, not to mention Jordan Peterson. Ideas about masculinity are conversely being spread through Christian churches, not just by Michael Foster and C.R. Wiley, but also other notable pastors like Doug Wilson, Jeff Durbin, and Vody Bauckham, who all have significant online presences. End quote. Jeff Durbin, of course, is another associate of Doug Wilson uh, out of Apologia Church in, uh, I think it's in Phoenix, Arizona. Several of these pastors have appeared alongside Wilson on various podcasts and Canon Press YouTube presentations and some are also Canon Press authors. The one I've identified so far both spoke at the Patriarchy Convention last year. Their pastors, Brian Salve and Michael Foster. All right, let's take a look at each of these guys in turn, see what we can find out about them. Let's look first of all at Pastor Brian Salve, the first of the bearded pastors spreading the biblical patriarchy into the manosphere. Salve is the head pastor of the Refuge Church out of Ogden, Utah. As far as I can tell, Refuge Church is not a part of Wilson's CREC network. Alongside Pastor Michael Foster, as I mentioned, he spoke at the Patriarch Convention in Orlando in October of 2022. Incidentally, he and Foster, who I'm going to talk about in a minute, in addition to speaking, also conducted a Patriarchy Worship session on a Sunday morning at that October conference. On May 3rd, 2022, he tweeted out that he'd been invited to speak at the upcoming conference, which aside from the fact wasn't founded by a Christian, and that most of the other speakers weren't Christian, was in the secular manosphere realm. So why did he do it? Well, let's take a look at how Salve spins it. And note, it has nothing to do with the possibility that what got him the gig in the first place was his own reprehensible stance on patriarchy, which has a clear and obvious overlap with what's going on in the secular manosphere, just without the biblical sanction behind it. In his Twitter thread, Defending his appearance at the convention, he argued that it was for the following three reasons, and note how he spiritualizes each one. Firstly, he argues, he would give him the perfect platform to say, quote, whatever I want, and that included a presentation of the gospel to the audience, who aren't afraid of dissenting views like his. He appealed to the example of the Apostle Paul, speaking to a secular, non-Christian pagan philosopher audience on Mars Hill in Athens from Acts 17 as his model. Second, he stated that the Lord is clearly working in that manosphere community. He says that several big names in the Red Pill camp have converted to Christianity. Thus, he argues this is his chance to spread the gospel and potentially win a few more over to his cause. Third and finally, he just throws up his hands and says, look, the very fact that he was even invited in the first place, that's an obvious sign that God is in it. So who is he to argue? He even maintains later in the thread that it's clearly a God-given opportunity that he can't pass up. But even here... Let's note how he just can't keep himself from advancing his views on the poisonous impact of feminism. 
he tweeted out, quote, But many they, there are willing to hear from a pastor. They're not afraid. Some of them have been interested in the church, but off-put by the effeminacy of so much of Christian culture. Many are now fathers who want to know how to be a father. They want to know how to be a man. They see the madness of radical feminism and its rotten fruit in our world. And I have an answer. I know the father. I know the God-man. If they'll listen, I'll talk. And I'll listen to them, too. I'm not scared of ideas I don't agree with, end quote. Note those two points that he makes in those tweets. First, non-believing men, he says, sucked into the manosphere, who were potentially interested in the church or becoming a Christian, have, in his words, been off-put by the effeminacy of so much of Christian culture. Second, while these non-believing men want to know how to be a man, they can't. Why? Because of the, quote, madness of radical feminism and its rotten fruit in our world. Now, those right there are two Wilson talking points, as well as other complementarian talking points we've heard before. In Wilson's advocating of a muscular masculine Christianity, he stated in numerous places that radical feminism has infiltrated and poisoned the church, such that right and true, read God-ordained, gender roles have been polluted and damaged nearly beyond all repair. This has not only weakened the traditional family structure, Wilson argues, it has also seriously damaged the witness of the church in the world. The solution, according to Wilson, is to reform both marriages and the church with, of course, a patriarchal model of marriage and family, as well as church leadership. So who exactly is the Salve? Well, from what I can understand, he's a former worship leader. Now, as mentioned, he's the head pastor of Refuge Church in Ogden, Utah, who, in addition to his other numerous projects, he's currently trying to raise funds. He's crowdfunding for a new worship album based on the book of Psalms. It's titled, by the way, is the catchily worded, Even Dragons Shall Him Praise. Does that make you want to donate some of your hard-earned cash for his new album? Incidentally, his motivation for this project is, in his words, that he is, quote, writing music for the new Christendom. He doesn't spell out what the new Christendom actually is or what it'll look like, but apparently it'll be making use of his music when it finally does happen. Sabe is also famous, or perhaps I should say infamous, for his sexist tweets that have gone viral, which we're going to look at in a minute. He hosts a couple of podcasts, the King's Hall and the Bright Hearth podcast. He writes for a deeply rooted magazine, Cross Politic, which of course is another Doug Wilson connection, as well as his personal blog. Although it's apparently no longer on his site, he once described himself there as follows, according to a 2022 article on the WeGotThisCovered.com site. He stated that he's, quote, a Reformed Christian, a Protestant, inerrantist, Calvinist, patriarchal, post-millennial, social conservative, abortion abolitionist, contrarian, etc. I abominate and execrate the so-called prosperity gospel, Western sexual ethics, the pornification of the American male through the entertainment industrial context, complex, the society-eroding scourge of fatherlessness, liberal outrage politics, and bad-slash-decaf coffee, end quote. I guess he's trying to be funny there. Blogger and former guest I've had on the show, Julianne Smith, she's from the Spiritual Sounding Board blog. She wrote about Salve a few years ago, back in 2020, and in her article, she connected him to Doug Wilson and the patriarchy movement. She also has even more examples of disturbing and sexist and misogynistic tweets that Salve has sent out, in addition to the one I'm going to talk about in a minute. One major connection she points out about Salve is that according to his personal reading list, which unfortunately apparently isn't available online any longer, he endorsed a number of books written by Doug Wilson, in addition to books written by his son, N. D. Wilson. He's also appeared alongside Doug Wilson on the Majesty's Men podcast. I mentioned the sexist tweet a minute ago. This was the one that got Salve noticed back in February 2022. 
He tweeted out the following statement, which then went viral with thousands weighing in. According to a Yahoo News article, his original tweet read, quote, Dear ladies, Salve began, there is no reason whatsoever for you to post pictures of yourself in low-cut shirts, bikinis, bra, and underwear, or anything similar, ever. Not to show your weight loss journey, not to show your newborn baby, not to document your birth story, end quote. He signed the tweet, Your Brothers, end quote. The backlash was immediate with people responding to the point that the format beginning Dear Brian eventually began trending on Twitter. Just as one example, progressive Christian blogger and author John Pavlovitz tweeted out, tweeted out, quote, Dear Brian, pastors like you are why the church is known for misogyny and the subjugation of women more than empathy and equity. You should try the sacred ministry of minding your own damn business, end quote. For his part, Salve responded by providing Bible verses to support his views, arguing that, quote, the cowardly church won't rebuke those sins common to women, end quote. On another line, it's interesting to look at Salve's influences and his theology as well. We heard a bit before as he described himself, but what about his church? According to Refuge's church-owned site on the What We Believe doctrinal statement page, they lay out their views on gender roles. Now, see how they use the various language, biblical patriarchy or complementarianism that we talked about before the break. Their site states, quote, we believe that God created men and women in the image of God and therefore absolutely equal in dignity, worth, and value. We also believe that men and women are divinely designed to be different and thus to occupy different yet complementary roles within the church and the home, specifically in the areas of teaching and authority. Because of this, only men may serve as elders at Refuge Church. We affirm a Christ-like father rule within the home, often referred to as biblical patriarchy, end quote. There can be no doubt, therefore, that Salve and his refuge church are clearly within the complementarian biblical patriarchy camp. It uses the language on their website. But there's even more. Following that doctrinal statement, there's a final section entitled Further Issues and Denials. After a lengthy and convoluted diatribe on faith, prayer, suffering, and healing, and God's part in the whole thing, the site spells out its views on marriage and gender roles in very clear black and white statement. They say, quote, we reject as sinful any sexual activity outside of the covenant marriage of one man and one woman, including, but not limited to, premarital sexual activity, fornication, consumption of pornographic material or erotic literature, homosexual sexual activity, including monogamous homosexual activity within a so-called gay marriage, bestiality, the sexual abuse of a child, adultery, whether physical, mental, emotional, actual, or digital, sexual violence, and polyamory of any kind, end quote. That seems awfully specific language for a church to use on its site, wouldn't you say? And it goes on. They say, quote, We further reject as sinful any attempt or claim to the possibility of sex alteration, including the practice of portraying oneself as sex incongruent with one's biological sex. This includes, but is not limited to, transgenderism, transvestitism, cross-dressing, gender reassignment surgery, or the promotion of such practices as healthy. As with all sinful activities, one who makes a practice of these things, apart from repentance and faith in the work of Christ on the cross, will be found in their sin on the last day and condemned to eternal judgment, end quote. Well, that's certainly a mouthful, isn't it? After reading all that, I think all one can say is that the Refuge Church is proudly out of step with mainstream progressive society, promoting as it does homophobic and transphobic beliefs, with a distinctly fundamentalist biblical patriarchy flavor. One's got to wonder, what kind of a person is attracted to such a church anyway? It's also worth noting that Refuge Church practices pedo-baptism, the baptism of infants, which if you recall from one of our early episodes, 
was one of the distinctives of the federal vision theology that caused such a firestorm back at the Auburn Avenue Conference at which Wilson spoke back in 2002. And if you remember, we tried to parse his really confusingly worded statement, does he believe in the federal vision theology anymore or not? We don't know. But I suppose this is why his former professor, Dr. Nick Geyer, accuses him of sophistry. Cult Hackers is a podcast about cracking systems of control to understand what cults are, how they work, how people leave, and how they make sense of the world after leaving. Cult Hackers come in many forms. They're the people who leave coercive groups, they're the researchers, the academics, the therapists, the writers, the artists, and the activists who hold these groups to account. They're also people who are really interested in cults and how they work. I'm Celine, a media graduate with a personal interest in cults. And I'm Celine's dad, Stephen, a former member of a cult and now an organisational psychologist who, amongst other things, researches cults and cultic systems of control. So subscribe to Cult Hackers today on your favourite podcast app. Let's take a look at the second person involved in the 21 convention, a certain Pastor Michael Foster. He's the second pastor to appear at the Patriarch Convention back in October in Orlando alongside Salve. Who is he? Foster was originally ordained in the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA. According to his bio, he's been a youth pastor, a church planter, and an associate pastor. He ultimately landed as the senior pastor of East River Church in Batavia, Ohio, which is a CREC-affiliated church. So right there is an immediate and obvious connection to Doug Wilson right off the bat. Interestingly, as did Salve, back in June 2022, Foster also tweeted out his justification as to why he was appearing at the 21 convention, which incidentally was subtitled Rebuilding the Patriarchy in Orlando back in October of 2022. Note the similarities in his arguments compared to what Salve had earlier tweeted out in May of the same year. He began his Twitter thread by asking rhetorically, quote, why am I doing the at 21 convention? because it attracts crowds of men who want more than PUA, TRP, etc. They want to know what the essence of true manhood is. Now, I don't have all that figured out myself, but I know the perfect man. He is the Alpha and Omega, Jesus, end quote. If you recall from what we covered in the Manosphere just a bit ago, they love to use insider jargon, loaded language, and acronyms. PUA, if you remember, stands for pickup artist, and TRP means the red pill. In addition to his spiritualizing of the invitation to speak at the convention, of course, he can't pass up the chance to connect with these people in the gospel, after all. Note, too, how his next tweet sounds surprisingly similar to what Salve said in his tweet, justifying his appearance there. Foster went on to say, quote, Also, I was surprised to find both the majority of the speakers and attendee last year to be very thoughtful. Many were Christians, or considering Christianity, but repulsed by the effeminate church they saw. They had hard but good questions. I can deal with some more of that, end quote. Therefore, in my view, Foster advances the same argument used by Salve. In addition to the surprising openness of last year's attendees as speakers, the major point was this. Non-believing men would have potentially been interested in the church and Christianity, but were, in his words, quote, repulsed by the effeminate church they saw. Once again, we see these guys are advancing the view, just like Wilson and other complementarian biblical patriarchalists do, that feminism has had a corrosive and debilitating impact on the church today, and that the apparent cure is to reinstate the patriarchy both in the church and in the home. So who exactly is Foster, aside from his gig as the pastor of this church in Ohio? 
From what I can tell, he's an author, podcaster, speaker, and more crucially, founder of the ministry, It's Good to Be a Man. Speaking of which, he wrote the book, and it's originally titled, It's Good to Be a Man, How Clueless Men Can Start Taking Dominion as Sons of God, published by, of course, you guessed it, Doug Wilson's Canon Press. So there's your connection right there. It's since been rebranded with a potentially snappier title that also dropped some of that theological jargon. It's now called It's Good to Be a Man, A Handbook for Godly Masculinity. Now, I need to research this a bit further, but once again, to me, the original title echoes R.J. Rushdoony's argument that godly men need to take dominion over the sphere of the family. He held, as I've talked about numerous times before on other podcasts, that the godly family is the basis of Christians ultimately taking dominion over society. Let's take a little bit of a rabbit trail. Let's see if we can make that connection. As an example from his personal website, Foster understands the confluence of dominion and patriarchy as follows. He says, quote, We define manhood as what a male enters into when his body and mind reach maturity. It is undertaking the work of dominion God made him for, striving to rightly order himself and the world by developing the virtues and skills necessary to this task, especially strength, workmanship, and wisdom. Manhood is ultimately about a man building God's house by building his own. And he goes on to say, Patriarchy, i.e. father rule, is integral to this. It is man's purpose to represent the rule of the father in creation so as to rightly order it, end quote. Now, to me, that final statement sounds absolutely similar to Rush Dooney's argument in his 1973 book, The Institutes of Biblical Law. To achieve his Christian Reconstructionist vision, Rush Dooney taught a bottom-up view as opposed to a top-down movement. It's like building a house starting with the foundation instead of with the roof first. Reconstructionism, as R.J. Rushduni saw it, is not about a hostile or forceful takeover from the top down to set up a theocracy in civil society. In Rushduni's view, the family was of paramount importance. He argued that the best way to achieve dominion was to start by teaching and training children the substance of God's laws as opposed to adults who most likely would not be as receptive to hearing that message. It also explains in part why Rushduni was so passionate about promoting traditional family values. Christian education, and homeschooling in particular. This is largely because he felt that children should be raised and educated within a godly, patriarchal environment. Rushduni taught that within the home, as the father takes dominion over his family, children would ideally be taught by their parents the law of God safely in the sphere of the home and the family, free from the interference of the state and its statist or government schools. Going back to Foster's site, from that description, it seems that Foster's book picks up where Rush Dooney left off. He says his publication is aimed at, quote, every man who yearns to exercise dominion as his father intended, but doesn't know how. Get a clear picture of the mission God made men for, how things have gotten so messed up, and how you can be part of correcting it by reforming your life, your family, your church, and ultimately your nation, end quote. In that interview on Chess Magazine I cited earlier with Will Spencer, Foster describes his book as, quote, a handbook for reclaiming godly masculinity that was lost in the church due to the corrupting influence of, you guessed it, feminism. This is an argument, as I pointed out before, that Wilson and his cohorts used often, as we've already noted, and it provides a connection to the same arguments advanced by those within the manosphere against the corrosive effects of feminism on society. Note how Foster uses the language of dominion in his argument that men were designed and created by God, as reflected in the dominion mandate of Genesis 1, 26-28, to 
quote, bend creation to their will. Note how he rehashes Rushduni's earlier argument on men and dominion when he declares, quote, God gave us a mission, and the mission was to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue and rule over the earth. When you carefully study scripture, you recognize the means by which that is accomplished is by a man growing into a mature manhood and a woman growing into mature womanhood and then joining together in marriage and having children and creating a household, end quote. I may have pointed this out earlier, but note that for guys like Wilson, Salvay, and Foster, there's no room for, quote, alternative lifestyles or marital models. In their worldview, it's one man, one woman, in a heterosexual marriage, having children and thereby creating a household. Heather cannot be allowed to have two mommies. We already saw that Salve's Refuge Church has some truly reprehensible homophobic and transphobic statements. Foster doesn't say that here explicitly, but he really doesn't have to. There's no room for any other type of relationship in his view. Louis Marcos, an evangelical professor at Houston Baptist University, demonstrates how the work of guys like Foster can become so easily mainstreamed within the larger evangelical community. Under the title, Rehabilitating Masculinity, he wrote on the imaginative conservative site a glowing review of Foster's book. He sides with Foster's depiction of toxic masculinity as actually a perversion of God's original design for men. Marcos also agrees with Foster that men have been, quote, browbeaten into being ashamed of their masculinity by toxic femininity and have, as a result, embraced androgyny. He goes on to comment that, quote, this emasculation of men, when combined with society's call to women to act like men in order to displace men in leadership roles, plays perfectly into Satan's hands, for Satan enjoys nothing more than preventing us fulfilling, from fulfilling God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply, end quote. Marcos also seems to echo Rushduni's earlier argument concerning the roles of men, families, and taking dominion. He maintains the Foster's statement that God's original design for men to take dominion is not a boastful or arrogant statement at all. Rather, he argues, quote, it is a simple biblical truth. God created us to rule over the earth and be fruitful, Genesis 1, 26-28. God began that process in the six days of creation, but he commissioned us, the crown of creation, to fill the earth and exert dominion over it. Though this commission was given to Adam and Eve, and though it could not be carried out without their collaboration, God did not create them as carbon copies of each other. Together, the man and his helpmeet, Genesis 2.18, would create households through which the whole earth would be subdued, end quote. Foster and Wilson, it's noted, have appeared together on multiple occasions on the Canon Press and the Man Rampa YouTube channel. One episode, for example, has Wilson, Michael Foster, and C.R. Wiley in a roundtable discussion talking about dominion in the Christian life and how that applies to men and hobbits, of course. For example, on that Dominion Roundtable discussion alongside C.R. Wiley and Doug Wilson, Foster explained the focus of, a, of his book, articulating its core argument as follows, quote, We wanted to focus on what's God's design and not to be ashamed of it, not to be ashamed of masculinity. Um, obviously, it's good to be a woman as well. That's like Genesis chapter 1. Basic things, part of God's cosmos, and he's made things, and we're being trained to be ashamed of the way God has ordered the world. We're trained to be ashamed of hierarchy and the created order and all that. And when it's reordered according to the lordship of Jesus, it's wonderful, right? It's a good thing, end quote. Essentially for Foster, his argument is that it is inevitable. According to God's design in order for the cosmos, man will rule. That original divine intention has been corrupted and twisted by feminists and other liberals such that now 
men are ashamed of their masculinity. That order needs to be reestablished by men taking dominion, first in their marriage and families, then also within their churches and community. It's interesting, we look at the 21 Convention's description of Foster's work. Note how they make the connection. Quote, they say, This ministry, that's Foster's, has a single focus, making the church masculine again. Michael works with men and pastors to overcome the feministic spirit of the age and reclaim the patriarchal roots of Christianity. He and his wife are raising seven kids outside Cincinnati, Ohio. Michael is the chief patriarch of this event, a ceremonial and leadership role is designated for each convention, end quote. Thus, in the case of Foster, I just don't buy his spiritualizing efforts to justify why he was invited to speak at the 21 convention. As with Salway before him, both men put forth an argument that they were clearly invited to speak at the convention by God's miraculous providence as witnesses to the gospel in a largely secular environment that was surprisingly receptive to the message. The fact is, though, in the words of the 21 convention itself, Foster's stated aim in his ministry was to, quote, make the church masculine again by overcoming the, quote, feministic spirit of the age and reclaim the patriarchal roots of Christianity. That, I think, is why both of them were there, and the fact is that they were both there spreading a toxic theology of biblical patriarchy to a very receptive audience. For his part, Foster believes that all the work on his ministry, It's Good to Be a Man, provides the perfect answer to the many problems already noted by many within the secular manosphere. As he told Will Spencer in that interview on Chess Magazine, the confluence between the secular manosphere and the church is going to be a, quote, wild ride. Note the use of insider manosphere language when Foster stated that, quote, the church is not going to take the red pill easy and the masculinity movement is not going to take the church easy. But since the red pill speaks truth and all truth is God's truth, we're not backing down. I'm not backing down. These other guys aren't backing down. It's going to be explosive, end quote. Let's conclude by wrapping up this episode. Let's give an assessment of the disturbing trend we've discussed, how Christian pastors like Salve and Foster are spreading the message of biblical patriarchy into the secular manosphere. Although, as we noted, both men claimed that the opportunity to speak at the 21 Patriarchy Convention was clearly a God thing because it provided them an avenue to spread the gospel in a secular environment. The language ultimately gave them away. Both men argued that, in line with complementarian biblical patriarchy views we noted earlier, the church has been damaged by the corrosive effects of feminism. This view goes back as far as Knight's initial argument back in 1977 in his book when he laid out the complementarian view in the first place. We also saw it in the Danvers statement as well as we've seen it in Wilson's many statements to the same effect. Similarly, they argue egalitarianism with his liberal progressive, and of course they would say it was unbiblical too, its views have damaged the church's witness in society as well as in godly marriages, too. Non-believing men who are populating the manosphere, they maintain, would have been interested in Christianity or the church, but as Salve stated in his tweet, they've been off-put by feminism. Foster argued along a similar line. Both pastors agree that these men desperately need a biblical, godly model of male authority, headship, and marriage, and surprise, surprise, they're perfectly placed to give them just that. Clearly, then, God himself has ordained this divine opportunity for these pastors to spread the good news into a whole new place. However, I hope that what I've demonstrated is that this line of reasoning, I think, is totally bogus. On the contrary, my argument is that the reason guys like Salve and Foster were invited to the 21 convention in the first place is not because it was a God thing, but rather is because their patriarchal views they've been promoting for years already simply found a receptive home, one that was long primed for it. 
essentially that both pastors have long been spouting views that are remarkably similar to those found within the manosphere. We saw that within the manosphere, there's a long history of anti-feminist views and misogynistic views, which resonates with the position held within the complementarian biblical patriarchy camp. Thus, what we've already noted is that influencers like Doug Wilson, who for years has promoted a toxic and damaging view on biblical patriarchy, gender roles, male headship, marriage, and so forth for years, they've now begun to infiltrate second and third generation pastors like Salve and Foster. So rather than it being some kind of miraculous divine opportunity for these pastors to preach a, a, to a new and receptive non-Christian audience, let's think of it as going the other way. What we have here are two universes that have found resonance with each other. Both views are anti-feminist, misogynistic, and toxic both to men and women. What these pastors are laying out is the argument that if you're single and you're looking for a mate, being a godly man will make you more attractive to Christian women than being a sleazy PUA, pickup artist. They also lament the fact that in most churches today, women far outnumber men, and men have been in short supply for a few generations now. Christianity itself has become feminized, and femininity itself has become Christianized. As Kristen Cobes Dumain lays out in her book Jesus and John Wayne, the church's answer to the problem for the last few decades has been to promote a muscular, masculine Christianity to attract men. Movements like the Promise Keepers appeal to Christian men. Pastors like Mark Driscoll called men in his church names like sissies and wimps and advocated a rough-and-tough male version of Christianity. So what we may be seeing with guys like Foster, Salve, Wilson, Piper, and so many others in the patriarchal camp is a version of the Christian manosphere in a way. Building themselves as a subsection of the larger manosphere, these so-called Christian masculinists advocate a view that's it's eerily similar to much of the content found on the secular manosphere. For example, in a 2014 article on the subject of the Christian Manosphere on the rewirednewsgroup.com site, author Diana Anderson notes that, quote, as extreme as Christian masculinist views may seem in terms of bald-faced misogyny, though, the things they write could probably be found on most theologically conservative bookshelves. Indeed, after months of reading their work as part of my ongoing research into Christian ver visions of femininity and masculinity, I found that the masculinist's idea about men and women line up quite neatly with ongoing discussions of purity, virginity, and womanhood within the evangelical church, end quote. And as we've noted, influencers like Doug Wilson, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, Denny Burke, Al Mohler, and Owen Strachan, and so many others have long been lamenting the fact that Christian men and women have long failed to fulfill their God-ordained biblical roles. Men are to be the providers and head of the home, and the women are to submit to their leadership and act as nurturers. Anderson concludes her piece by pointing out that, quote, conservative Christians need to confront the extremes to which their movement has been taken and the things that are being said in the name of their God. Conservative Christianity and the Christian manosphere have different intentions. Supporters of the formerly ostensibly just want to put the world back on track, while those of the latter are using their theology to fuel explicit hate for women. But their conclusions are all too often identical. The condemnation of women who make their own choices, who own themselves, and who refuse to be taken as merely a body fulfilling a role. Both result in the treatment of women as objects, as interchangeable cogs in the machinery of a social and religious narrative. One is just more honest about it, end quote. Thanks for coming along with me on this long journey as we've taken an exhaustive and probably exhausting long look at Doug Wilson and his controversial, toxic views. If you've got any thoughts, comments, questions about this or any other episode, you can contact me a couple of different ways. You can find me on Twitter at MindShift2018. You can send me a DM there or follow me there. You can send me an email through the public MindShift podcast Facebook page. And then finally, 
Do me a favor, subscribe on iTunes, as well as leaving a review of the show. That'll help with ratings and it'll ultimately help to promote the show. I'll see you next time. We're going to have Nathaniel Manderson as we discuss his work. He's a self-proclaimed liberal Christian taking on the Christian right and the evangelical church. He's taking on the task. So I'll see you next time with Dave Manderson right here on Mindship Podcast. <laughs>